Okay, so welcome back to another lecture in contract law. In this lecture, I want to follow up from the previous topic, which dealt with express terms in contract law, and focus on the concept of implied terms in contract law. Now, all of this, both of these topics, rather, express terms and implied terms, they both have to do with what I've been calling to this point the incorporation problem which is the problem of how do terms get incorporated into a contract. We've discussed in detail one form of this, which is how do express terms get incorporated into a contract, things that have actually been said or written down by the parties. Now we have to deal with the opposite topic, which is how do things that haven't been said get incorporated into the contract. And initially you might think of this as a somewhat odd topic for discussion, because you might say, well, if they haven't said it and they haven't written it down, then why should it get incorporated into the contract? But there are a number of reasons why terms have to sometimes be implied into contracts. And just as background here, there is a general concept in the philosophy of language called implicature. And implicature has to do with the notion that sometimes in order to make sense of an expression made by somebody or to give it its proper meaning, you have to imply things into it. So linguists sometimes divide language into two main branches. They talk about semantics and pragmatics. Semantics has to do with the meanings that are encoded into words and sentences due to general conventions, kind of publicly accessible and known conventions of language. And pragmatics has to do with the meaning that is added to those words and sentences by a particular context in which they are uttered. So look, we've kind of encountered examples of this before, but let's imagine that you and I are having a conversation one day while we're walking by a river, and I tell you, oh look, in two days' time, let's meet once more for a walk, and I'll meet you at the bank by 12 o'clock. Well, what do I mean by the word bank in that sentence? Bank, after all, has multiple meanings. I could be referring to a financial institution, or I could be referring to the bank of the river. Well, pragmatically speaking, we might say, given the context in which I uttered this sentence, given the fact that we, we were walking alongside the river, it makes sense to assume that the meaning really was that I'd meet you by the river bank and not at some particular financial institution. So that's just one example of how sometimes what we mean has to be determined by the context in which we say it. By the same token, sometimes words or ideas have to be added into utterances that we've made to give them their proper meaning, or to give them their full meaning, or to make sense of what was said or agreed between parties. Sometimes I like to give the example of two people trying to sell tickets to a concert, and the concert is due to take place by a certain date so let's say they negotiate over the sale of these tickets, so they agree upon a price, but they don't mention anything about an, a transfer date, when the tickets have to be transferred from one party to another. Well, what is the implied meaning of the agreement? At what date do the tickets have to be transferred? So what we might say is that, look, even though they didn't expressly agree upon a transfer date, we imply one into the agreement in order to make sense of it, in order to give it its proper effect, and we say that the tickets have to be transferred before the day that the concert takes place. That's the only way you can really make sense of the agreement reached between the parties. So this phenomenon of implying terms, words, sentences into 
conversations between people happens all the time in our everyday lives, but it also happens all the time in contract law. Now, the examples I just gave there suggest that we're implying terms into a contract in order to make sense of it or to give it its proper meaning. And that is one main example of implicature at work in contract law. But it's not the only one, because sometimes we have to imply terms into a contract due to legal necessity, so that there's some provision in law that necessitates a particular term being added into a contract. So we're going to discuss all the rules here that relate to the implying of terms into a contract. And there's really four categories of rules that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the rules by which terms are implied into contracts by courts of common law. So these are just the common law rules that have developed over time for implying terms into contract. Then we're going to talk about terms that are implied into contracts through customs and practice. So again, we've kind of come across this already, the notion that in certain industries, norms may be applied that imply terms into contracts. We're then going to talk about terms that are implied into contracts due to statute law. And the main statute we're going to be talking about are the various sales of goods acts from 1893 up until more recently. And then finally, we're going to talk about terms that are implied into contracts due to the operation of the Irish Constitution. So I'll spend most of the time in this first lecture talking about the rules by which terms are implied into contracts by common law courts. So these are the rules of implicature that have developed gradually over the past couple of hundred years. So let me give a statement of the basic rule that common law courts follow when they're implying terms into contracts. And that rule can be stated as follows. A court may decide that a contract includes an implied term if A, the existence of such a term is necessary in order to give effect to the intention of the parties. This is the so-called implied in fact rule. Or B, the existence of such a term is essential to the particular kind of legal relationship created by the contract. This is the so-called implied in law rule. So the rules of implicature as developed by the common law courts divide into these two forms, two types, terms that are implied in fact in order to give effect to the intention of the parties, and terms that are implied in law in order to create the legal relationship that the parties were trying to create. So let's talk a little bit about the first of those, the notion of terms that are implied by fact. So the basic idea here is that, again, it's a bit of a myth, as we encountered earlier in this course, but there is a notion that courts are trying to give effect to the intentions of parties when they are finding and recognizing the existence of contracts. Remember this notion that the foundation of contract law is the agreement reached between the parties. And the guiding motivation behind this implied-in-fact rule is that courts want to respect the parties' intentions, respect their right to freedom of contract, And all they're doing by implying terms into a contract by fact is they're giving effect to the true intentions of the parties. Now, just as we mentioned earlier in the year that that notion that the foundation of contract law is agreement is a bit of a myth because courts really don't respect subjective agreements between parties. They focus on the objective meaning of agreements or uh, expressions or communications between parties. The same is kind of true here for this implied in fact rule, that actually they're not giving effect to the subjective intentions of the parties, they're giving effect to the objective intention of the parties. 
And we'll see that now as we go through these cases. So look, the locus classicus here, the most important case is probably a case called the Moorcock. It's an 1889 English decision. And the facts of the case are as follows. The defendants, and I should mention here that I'm giving this case the name the Moorcock because it's common when you have cases involving ships to name them after the ship. So the defendants, anyway, allowed the plaintiff to moor his vessel, the Moorcock, at their jetty so as to offload goods. Now, this was a jetty that extended into the River Thames, and the bed of the river was under the control of the conservators of the River Thames. While the vessel was moored and the goods were being offloaded, the tide went out, and so the vessel became stuck on the riverbed. And when this happened, the vessel was damaged due to the uneven nature of the riverbed, and the plaintiff sued for the damages caused by the fact that it got stuck on the riverbed. Now, the defendants argued that the damage to the ship was not their fault. Uh, they didn't control the river, and they had no obligation to investigate whether the riverbed was uneven prior to mooring. And the question that came before the court in this case was whether a term should be implied into the contract reached between the plaintiff and the defendants, stating that the defendants should, in fact, take reasonable care to ascertain that the bottom of the river was in such a condition as not to endanger the vessel using their premises in the ordinary way. And the English Court of Appeal held that such a term should indeed be implied into the contract. So if you are offering up your jetty for offloading goods and you allow a ship to be moored at your jetty and you know that the tide goes out and the riverbed is uneven, you do have an implied duty to take reasonable care to ascertain that the bottom of the river is safe. And this is implied into the contract. Now, it's important to look at the reasoning of the court here. And this is a decision made by Lord Justice Bowen, who should be familiar to you because he's the judge of, or the author, rather, of the famous judgment in Carlisle versus Carbolic Smokepole, the one that we analyzed in quite some detail earlier in the semester. And he argues that there is an implied warranty of contract in this case. And he says the following in support of that idea. He says, an implied warranty, as distinguished from an express warranty, is in all cases founded on the presumed intention of the parties and upon reason. The implication which the law draws, the law draws with the object of giving efficacy to the contract and preventing such a failure of consideration as cannot have been within the contemplation of the parties. Now, what did each party in a case like this know? Both parties knew that this jetty was let out for hire and they knew that it could only be used under the contract by the ship taking ground. They must have known that. They must have known, both of them, that unless the ground was safe, the ship would simply be buying an opportunity for danger. The parties also knew that with regard to the safety of the ground outside the jetty, the ship owner could know nothing at all, and the jetty owner might, with reasonable care, know everything. The owners of the jetty, or their servants, were there at high and low tide, and with little trouble they could satisfy themselves as to whether the berth was reasonably safe. So you can see what he's saying here. He's saying that if they offer up their jetty for the purposes of offloading goods, and they are in a position to know what the state of the riverbed is, then they should warrant that the riverbed is safe for the purposes of offloading goods. 
So the way in which Lord Justice Bowen's judgment has typically been interpreted in the intervening years is that there are two elements to the test that he applies when deciding whether or not to imply a term into a contract by fact. The first element of the test is to focus on the presumed intention of the parties, and the goal of the courts is to give effect to the presumed intention of the parties. That sounds fine. The second element of the test, then, is reasonability. He mentions this in the bit that I just quoted to you there about the foundation of the judgment here is on reason. So the notion is that the courts must imply into the contract what it is reasonable to imply in the particular context. And now it's this second element of the test that has proved controversial in the intervening years because you know, what is it reasonable to assume? What is it reasonable to imply into the contract? So before we proceed to consider that topic in more depth, let me just mention briefly an Irish case, a case called Butler v. McAlpine. It's a 1904 Irish decision, which is essentially an Irish case that mimics almost exactly the facts of the Moorcock. So you have a barge ship that's damaged when it gets grounded on a block of hardened cement when it's offloading goods. And the same question goes before the courts. Is there an implied duty to ascertain that the ground is reasonably safe? And the court followed the reasoning in the Moorcock exactly, and they said that such a term should indeed be implied into the contract. Now, in several later English decisions, it was found that the judgment of Lord Justice Bowen was a little bit vague, and this reasonability element to his test in particular was singled out for harsh judgment. And so courts tried to refine it and make it a bit more precise. And before I go through this, it's worth asking yourself the question, after you've learned the facts of these cases and the judgments within them, did they do a good job of trying to make the rule more precise? So the first case that reassessed the position was a case called Sherlaw versus Southern Foundries. It's a 1939 English decision. And the facts of the case are as follows. Sherlaw, the plaintiff, was the managing director of the defendant company. In 1933, so six years before this case was decided, that company was taken over by another company. And Sherlaw was then retained as the managing director in this newly taken over company in a contract that stated that he was to remain in that position as managing director for a further 10 years. Now, it turns out the owners of the new company, the merged company, didn't like Sherlaw very much and wanted to get rid of him. So they came up with a crafty scheme for getting rid of him to kind of override his contract. They changed the company's constitution, the Articles of Association of the company, giving three of the company's directors the power to remove any other director. And so then three of the directors voted to remove Sherlaw from his managing directorship prior to the end of his 10-year period in his contract. Now, Sherlaw sued them, for breach of contract. Seems fair enough. His contract said that he was to remain in the position for 10 years. But the company directors argued that they were merely exercising their legal rights under the company's constitution. And the Court of Appeal, in its decision, held in favor of Sherlaw and said that it was an implied term of his contract that he could not be removed as a director, and more particularly, that the company's constitution could not be altered in a way that created the power to remove him and override the contract. In reaching this conclusion, Lord Justice McKinnon said the following, I recognize that the right or duty of a court to find the existence of an implied term or implied terms in a written contract is a matter to be exercised with care, 
and a court is too often invited to do so upon vague and uncertain grounds. Too often also such an invitation is backed by the citation of a sentence or two from the judgment of Lord Justice Bowen in the Moorcock. If I may quote from an essay which I wrote some years ago, I then said, Prima facie, that which in any contract is left to be implied, and need not be expressed, is something so obvious that it goes without saying. So that if, while the parties were making their bargain, an officious bystander were to suggest some express provision for it in their agreement, they would testily suppress him with a common, oh, of course. So let me just pause here to make a couple of comments. You can see what he's doing in this judgment. He's saying that, look, the ruling in the Moorcock is a bit vague, and there's a danger here that courts are going to imply terms into contracts on the grounds of reasonability a bit too freely, and that might actually have the effect of undermining the agreement that was reached between the parties. So implying terms into a contract, it's a power that needs to be exercised by a court with discretion. So the question then becomes, what's the appropriate test that the court should apply? And I wrote this essay years ago where I said the appropriate test is and to imagine yourself in the position of an officious bystander. And if you're in this position, what would you say to the parties? You'd say, well, you meant to say this. And if the parties would have said, oh, of course we meant to say that, then this is a term that should be implied into the contract. So continuing in this instance, he says, applying that standard, the officious bystander standard, in this case, I ask myself what would have happened if when this contract had been drafted and was awaiting signature, a third party reading the draft had said, Would it not be well to put in a provision that the company shall not exercise or create any right to remove Mr. Sherlaw from his directorship, and that he have no right to resign his directorship? I am satisfied that they would both have assented to this as implied already and agreed to its expression for greater certainty. So this is... Judgment, the Sherlaw judgment, is the basis for something called the officious bystander test for implied terms. And it's worth noting here what the meaning of the word officious is, because it's kind of an interesting analogy. We had the intelligent bystander test from Lord Justice Denning when we were looking at express terms and how they get incorporated into a contract. Officious means an officious bystander is somebody who offers unnecessary advice or services or intervenes when they are neither asked nor needed to. So what um, Lord Justice McKinnon is asking us to imagine here is somebody who is hovering next to the parties as they negotiate their agreement and meddles in this process by saying, didn't you mean to add this term into the contract? Didn't you mean to say this? And then if the parties would have said, oh, of course we meant to say that, we meant to include that, then we would say that this is a term that must be implied into the contract. So it's an interesting kind of thought experiment that he's imagining here, is that you've got to put yourselves in the shoes of this officious, meddlesome, intervening bystander. Now, this officious bystander test, which, remember, was supposed to provide clarity and to stay the judicial hand from implying terms into contracts willy-nilly, has been adopted and followed in many subsequent cases about implied rules, or sorry, implied terms. So a couple of cases that are worth mentioning here. There's the case of Ward and Fagan v. Spivak Limited. This is an Irish case, 1957 Irish decision. And the two plaintiffs in this case were sales agents for the defendant company. 
and they were employed on a commission basis, so they received a percentage on each sale that they made. Now, their contracts made no reference to what should happen to their outstanding commission payments if they were terminated in their employment. So they were subsequently terminated, and the company withheld all of their commission payments. The plaintiffs then tried to argue that there was a term implied into their employment contract stating that they would be entitled to all outstanding commission payments if they were terminated in their employment. So Davitt, who was president of the Irish High Court at the time, in reaching judgment in this case, explicitly endorsed the officious bystander test in the Irish courts. He said, well, imagine if Fagan had said, of course it is understood that in the event of my ceasing to be your agent, commission will still continue to be payable to me after my death on all business subsequently done with any customer, I am quite sure that Spivak would have said certainly not. But if Spivak had also said, of course it is understood that the in the event of your agency coming to an end, you will cease to draw any commission and I will continue to reap the benefit of your work without paying you for anything, I cannot imagine Fagan or Ward entering into the contract at all. I do therefore hold that I should imply a term to the effect that if Fagan's agency were terminated, he would be entitled to draw continuing commission on all orders from customers which had been introduced by him, and in Ward's case, I come to a similar conclusion. So, look, I mean, I think Davitt's judgment in this case is a sensible one, or at least an understandable one, in the sense that you can imagine an agent that's being paid on commission not entering into a contract if he would lose the entitlement to commission payments after being terminated. But obviously there's a limit to the entitlement that an agent would have. You can't claim commission on all subsequent business done between the company and any customers that he happened to introduce to them. And interestingly enough, when this case was appealed to the Irish Supreme Court, uh, Chief Justice Maguire overturned Davitt's judgment and said, even though the officious bystander test applies, he said that I am quite unable to hold, as Davitt does, that had the matter been raised, Mr. Spivak must have agreed to this implied term. To read such a term into the contract would, in my view, not be to make the clear the intention of the parties unexpressed at the time, but would be to make an entirely new contract. So you can see here that Chief Justice McGuire is saying that, well, actually, this officious bystander test, as applied by Davitt in this case, is a little bit too lax, a little bit too free. And we need to interpret it in a more restrictive way. And some subsequent Irish judgments have taken up this idea in more detail. And so I'm just going to mention this in passing. I'm not going to look at the facts of it, but there's a case called Sweeney v. Duggan, which is a 1997 Irish case, where Justice Murphy in the decision said that whether a term is implied pursuant to the presumed intention of the parties, it must not be merely reasonable, but it must also be necessary so, look, you can see here that courts are maybe not entirely comfortable with this notion of implying terms into a contract, and this reasonability test that was set out many years ago by Lord Justice Bowen, it lingers a little bit in the law, and there's an attempt to restrict it or prevent it by focusing on what is necessary to a contract. But, I mean, in practice, it's very hard to know what is necessary, and I think in reality there is some kind of blurry boundary between what is reasonable to make sense of the agreement reached between the parties and what is necessary to make sense of the agreement reached between the parties. So you kind of have to exercise your own judgment here. And the only thing we can say for sure is that Irish courts seem to want to apply this officious bystander test in a quite a restrictive way. 
So look, that's terms implied by fact or in fact. What about terms implied in law, this second branch of the common law rule about implicature in contract law? So whereas the guiding motivation behind terms implied in fact was to give effect to the intention of the parties, the guiding motivation behind terms implied in law is to protect the integrity of certain types of legal relationship. So I'm going to lay my own cards on the table at the outset. I think this is quite a nebulous concept or idea, this notion of legal necessity, of certain terms being necessitated by law. This looks in many ways like it is just a smokescreen for judges to kind of imply terms that they think are appropriate to particular kinds of relationship into contracts. Now, that doesn't mean that this isn't a valuable doctrine and that it doesn't achieve valuable policy ends. But I think in reality, it is a little bit of a a slippery concept and that you kind of see what you want to see in this doctrine. So let's just talk about some of the important cases on this idea. And the leading English case is probably a case called Liverpool City Council v. Irwin, which has been cited many times in Irish courts as well. This is a 1977 English appeals court and House of Lords decision. And the facts of the case are as follows. The defendant, Sir Wynne, rented a flat in a tower block from Liverpool City Council, the plaintiffs. They stopped paying rent on this flat, and so the plaintiffs tried to uh, seek possession of the flat. So they brought them to court uh, looking for an order of possession. The defendants countersued by seeking damages of £10, nominal damages, so not really significant, saying that Liverpool City Council were in breach of contract. So the argument that Irwin made in this case was that the plaintiffs had breached three implied terms of the leasehold contract between themselves and Liverpool City Council, or rather between Irwin and Liverpool City Council. They said that Liverpool City Council had failed to discharge their duty to repair and maintain the common parts of the tower block in the flat building, that they had not complied with the duty to allow the defendants to enjoy quiet use of the property, and that they had also breached an implied term under Section 32 of the Housing Act of 1961 that required repairs to plumbing and related matters. Now, when this case was originally brought to trial, the defendants were successful, They then lost on appeal to the Court of Appeal, but Lord Denning issued a famous dissenting judgment in this case, saying that they should have won, and they did eventually win, in part at least, on appeal to the House of Lords, but on narrower grounds than Lord Denning wanted them to win on in the Court of Appeal. And in fact, this judgment is probably most famous due to the contrast in the judgments between Denning in the Court of Appeal and Lord Wilberforce in the House of Lords, and essentially what their argument was, it captures the tenor of the argument or debate about this notion of terms implied by law ever since. And, you know, that debate is whether this doctrine of terms implied in law is a narrow one that applies to, you know, a very limited range or set of contractual terms, or whether it is a broader one that effectively allows judges to imply terms into contract wherever it is reasonable or appropriate to achieve some kind of policy goal. So what I'll do here is I'll read from the judgment of Lord Denning. I'll then try and summarize or explain his reasoning. I'll then read from the judgment of Lord Wilberforce and summarize and explain his reasoning and highlight the contrast or difference between them. So let's start with Lord Denning. In his judgment, he said the following. 
It is often said that the courts only imply a term in a contract when it is both reasonable and necessary in order to give business efficacy to the transaction. It is with some trepidation that I venture to question these rules. I do so because they do not truly represent the way in which courts act. Let me take some instances. There are stacks of them. So at this point in his judgment, he cites several cases that have been decided by the English courts in which they are implying terms into a contract, and he just argues that these cases don't make sense if we assume that the only basis on which courts imply terms into a contract is by following the judgment of Lord Justice Bowen or Lord Justice McKinnon in the Moorcock and the Sherlaw, respectively, and the Sherlaw decision, respectively. So he says, if you read the discussion in those cases, you will see that in none of them did the court ask, what did the parties intend? Nor did the courts ask, is it necessary to give business efficacy to the transaction? The judgments in all of those cases show that the courts implied a term according to whether it was reasonable in all the circumstances to do so. It could not be solved by inquiring what they both intended or into what was necessary, but only into what was reasonable. And this is to be decided as a matter of law and not as a matter of fact. All right, so you can see what Lord Denning is doing here. He's saying that the development of the law or the interpretation of the law post the Moorcock has been too restrictive. There's been this assumption that you only imply terms into a contract based on giving effect to the intention of the parties, given the circumstances. There needs to be a broader doctrine here that we can imply terms into a contract whenever it is reasonable as a matter of law to do so. And so going back to this particular case of Liverpool City Council of Irwin, he says, of course, as a matter of law, it is reasonable to imply into the contract between the council and the defendants these terms about maintaining upkeep of the property and quiet enjoyment of the property and so forth. Now, contrast that with Lord Justice Wilberforce in the House of Lords. What does he say? He says, There are varieties of implications which the court thinks fit to make, and they do not necessarily involve the same process. Where there is, on the face of it, a complete contract, the courts are sometimes willing to add terms to it. In that case, the courts are spelling out what both parties know and would, if asked, unhesitatingly agree to be part of the bargain. So that's the idea of just giving effect to the intention of the parties. In other cases, there is an apparently complete bargain. The courts are willing to add a term on the ground that without it in the contract, the contract will not work. This is the doctrine of the Moorcock as usually applied. But, and here he adds, this is a strict test, although the degree of strictness seems to vary with the current legal trend. There is, however, then a third variety of implication, that which I think Lord Denning favours, or at least did favour in this case, and that is the implication of reasonable terms. But though I agree with many of his instances, I cannot go so far as to endorse his general principle. Indeed, it seems to me with respect to extend a long and undesirable way beyond sound authority. The present case, in my opinion, represents a fourth category. The court here is simply concerned to establish what the contract is, the parties not having themselves fully stated the terms. What, then, should this contract be held to be? There can be no doubt that there must be implied, number one, an easement for the tenants and their licensees to use the stairs, a right in the nature of an easement to use the lifts, an easement to use the rubbish chutes, 
But are these easements to be accompanied by any obligation on the landlord, and by what obligation? In my opinion, such obligation should be read into the contract as the nature of the contract itself implicitly requires. No more, no less. A test, in other words, of necessity. All these easements are not just facilities or conveniences provided at discretion, they are essentials of the tenancy without which life in the dwellings as a tenant is not possible. To leave a landlord free of contractual obligation, as regards these matters, is inconsistent totally with the nature, nature of this relationship. So let me say a few things about this judgment just to clarify it, and that's where we'll wrap up for the, this lecture. First, just to explain some of the jargon in that judgment, an easement is essentially a right to the use of property. So he's talking about an easement in the use of the stairs and so forth. So that means you have a legal right to enter and exit your flat using the stairs. And then what he argues is that the tenants have this right to use these part, common parts of the building, but it also then follows that the landlord should have an obligation to maintain them and upkeep them in order for them to enter and exit their property. And it wouldn't make sense, given the nature of the legal relationship between them, to not imply such a duty. Okay, but in reaching that conclusion, Wilberforce very clearly rejects Lord Denning's notion that courts can imply terms into contracts based on what's reasonable. But he accepts that sometimes terms must be implied into a contract in order to establish the true nature of the contractual relationship. But you should only ever imply such terms as are necessary to that type of contractual relationship. So what he's really saying in this judgment is that there is some kind of legal essence to landlord-tenant relationships. And if all the terms and conditions of such a relationship are not fully specified in a written contract reached between the parties, courts will take it upon themselves to imply additional terms into that contract to make sense of that or give effect to that type of legal relationship. Now, Wilberforce is convinced, by the way, that this is more restrictive than Denning is setting out. But I think in practice, again, this distinction between what's reasonable, what's legally reasonable, and what's legally necessary is actually quite vague. And we'll see this when we look at subsequent decisions that follow on from the Liverpool City Council decision. And that's where we're going to pick up the thread in the next lecture.